Now, shall we begin? Islam, if you bring it up as non as a non-Muslim person or someone that's been there, you're a racist or as Islamophobe or bigot. That's what I was called by CARE, Council of America Islamic Relations. But today, or tonight, I'm going to break down some of what Brother Rashid said and I'm going to factually paint this picture for you. Because no matter what I say or do, if it's not exactly factual, CARE will always find a way to come back and say, and try to discredit me for what I'm saying. Because the truth is, I'm speaking the truth. I've read the Quran, the Hadith, the Surahs, 90% of it is violence. And only 10% of it is conciliatory or what some say is peaceful part of the Quran. The lockdown situation for Oklahoma Muslims that stems from comments made by John Bennett, the head of the Republican Party here in Oklahoma. We have uh, no problem uh, with people expressing their concerns about our faith. But when it crosses the line um, and uh, Representative Bennett would make a statement such as, Islam is a cancer in American society that needs to be eliminated, we take that very seriously. We take no chances. Um, yesterday, our children did not go play outside in the entire state of Oklahoma. Today, as they were making signs for an event, a threatening call came in. I got a phone call from a man who uh, asked if this was care, yes, asked if I was the director. I said yes and said, well, I think you should be beheaded and I think all Muslims should be beheaded. One of the chief differences between superstition and faith, in my view, is that superstition is a product of fear and faith is a manifestation of love. And as a Christian believer, I've often taken solace in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And elsewhere, we read that perfect love casteth out fear. As somebody who is a Christian believer, it seems to me obvious that if we actually have the faith that we profess, we will not be motivated by fear or fixated on our fears. Which makes me wonder, what precisely is the religion of the individual who wrote the following screed at defendchristians.org? I confess I'm Islamophobic, but for very good reasons. My fear is not an irrational fear based on uninformed prejudice. Rather, it's an historic, clear-eyed, informed, rational fear. By the way, I think rational fear is a functional oxymoron. ISSA, by that I think he refers to ISIS, is doing to American journalists what every true follower of Muhammad wants to do to you and yours, subjugate or murder you. They believe they have been given a mandate by Allah, or Satan, to dominate the world. The author of this effusion, by the way, is a fellow by the name of Gary Cass, who I take it is a pastor of some variety. 1,400 years of history, both ancient and modern, that is, the 1 to 1.5 million dead Armenians at the hands of the Muslim Turks in 1915, tell us that Muslims are deadly serious about their infernal goals. Now we get to watch their violent demonic fanaticism on YouTube videos. Incidentally, if he knows anything about Turkish history, he'd realize that Ataturk and the secular government he created, the nationalist government he created, were by no means motivated by Islamic fundamentalism. All he thinks he knows is that they were Turks, 
which means that they were Muslims, which means reductively that they must have been Muslim fundamentalists. History shows where Muslims get the power and means to subjugate and behead Christians, Jews at all, they do it. Why? It's really very simple. It's what Muhammad did and taught. So I have what I believe is a very rational fear for what our children and their children will face. Do you? In other words, he's evangelizing on behalf of fear. Are there any solutions? All the seminars, petitions, books, laws, articles, and other similar actions are worthless. Muslims laugh at us for how stupid we are when it comes to dealing with them. Here's three possible solutions. But really, there's only one. Spoiler alert, he prefers the final of these three solutions. 1. Conversion. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see Muslims turn from Satan or Allah to Christ? But I agree with Phil Robertson. Phil Robertson, of course, is the patriarch of the Duck Dynasty clan. This is not biblically doable. Why? God has a plan, and he revealed it at the birth of Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. Quote, the angel of the Lord said, He, Ishmael, will be an ass of a man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. Genesis 16, 11, and 12. The Arab Muslims are God's sworn enemies and are ordained by God to be against everyone. In other words, he's saying that generically, as a race, they're irredeemable. They were created to be vessels of wrath, suitable only for slaughter, according to Mr. Cass. That's not to say there will not be a small percentage of Muslims who will be saved by faith in Christ, but even if they escape with their lives after apostatizing from Islam, their influence will be negligible. History does not record a mighty move of God in saving masses of Muslims. I believe the scriptures militate against mass Muslim conversions. 2. Depart, and by that I think he means deport, all Muslims now. Deport them like Spain was forced to do when they deported Muslim Moors. Muslims in America are procreating at twice the rate of other groups, so either we force them all to get sterilized, or we wait for the army of Islam to arise in our midst and do what Muslims always do, resort to violence. This, incidentally, is the same mindset and the same prescription offered by Pharaoh in dealing with the Hebrews in his midst, and it led to an attempted genocide. And it's, of course, the same mindset that we've seen more recently in eugenicist-oriented regimes. Just see what they are doing in France, Britain, and Scandinavia. Fat chance our politicians will do anything until it is too late, unless, of course, we the people demand otherwise. In other words, he's propagating the idea that we must arise and demand either forced expulsions or sterilizations of Muslims. That would require knowing where the Muslims are, who the Muslims are, and compelling them to undergo forced sterilization or deportation. But history shows America is always late to the fight, or we can do what most Americans are doing, wishfully think that we are the exception and Muslims will all of a sudden change and want to coexist. This is irrational and stupid, but it makes life more tolerable. Knowing that every mosque in America is conspiring to kill you and yours is terrifying. 3. Violence. The only thing that is biblical, and that 1400 years of history has shown to work, is overwhelming Christian just war and overwhelming self-defense. Christian generals Charles Martel in 732 and John Sobieski in 1672 defeated Islamic Turks and their attempts to take the West. Will God even intervene or turn us over to the Muslims for turning against him? Either way, we must be prepared for the increase of terror at home and abroad. Listen carefully to how he's defining 
terror. This is not irrational, but the loving thing we must do for our children and our neighbors. First trust in God, then obtain a gun or guns, learn to shoot, teach your kids the Christian doctrines of just war and self-defense, create small cells of family and friends that you can rely on if something catastrophic happens and civil society suddenly melts down. ISIS has done us all a favor. The true face of Islam is on full display even as Muhammad is burning in hell. We will have to face the harsh truth that Islam has no place in civilized society. Muslims cannot live in a society based on Christian ideals of equality and liberty. They will always seek to harm us. Now the only question is, how many more dead bodies will have to pile up at home and abroad before we crush the vicious seed of Ishmael in Jesus' name? The terror he's talking about is a war of extermination at home and abroad in order to eradicate the seed of Ishmael. And he's preaching this as if it were a holy responsibility. He is literally preaching an exterminationist jihad. The good news is that Jesus and his indestructible church will prevail, but there will be pain and heartache along the way to victory. May we be willing to take the lesser pains now so our children won't have to take greater pains later. This screed could be taken as a transliteration into contemporary colloquial English of the type of exhortations that resounded from the pulpits of Germany and the 1930s in the name of positive Christianity, which was defined as the holy cause of mobilizing people to destroy the enemies of the fatherland. Once again, I'm not sure what religion this man represents. It has nothing at all to do with the Savior whose name this man profanes by associating it with the aspiration to commit genocidal mass murder. This is Will Grigg with Freedom Zealot Radio. Stand by for more sedition after this. Um, so yes, does ISIS do Khmer Rouge-like activities where they just kill people indiscriminately who aren't just like them? Yes, and would most Muslim people in the world do that or condone that? No, no. but most Muslim people in the world do condone violence just for what you, you think. I think the only answer is I think they are at war with us. Yep. Whether we like it or not, I think most people would rather live in peace most Americans are, just leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. They're not going to leave us alone. They're not going to leave Israel alone. So that leaves us with two options. Do nothing and then get ready for the next attack and then we'll have a report that says they were at war with us, we weren't at war with them. In this case, you either have to convert them, which I think is, uh, would be next to impossible. I'm not giving up on them, but I'm just saying either convert them or kill them.
we've reached that stage in our country's descent into the abyss of collectivist mania in which people of stature and apparent sobriety are using the expression final solution unironically. One such person is Lieutenant Colonel James G. Zumwalt, USMC, retired. In the following essay from FamilySecurityMatters.org, we read, This author needs to issue an apology. Four years ago, after delivering a speech to a college audience on the Vietnam War and the enemy we fought there, a student asked for a comparison between our loss in Vietnam and a possible loss in Iraq and Afghanistan. The response was, Our Vietnam loss did not result in the enemy following us home. A loss in Iraq and Afghanistan would. A follow-up question was, How then do we change the mindset of an Islamic enemy so committed to killing or being killed on the battlefield? The author's response was, we don't change it because we can't. The only way to defeat such an enemy was to kill him. A week later, the author received a letter from a very irate woman, audience member, who was critical about giving impressionable young students such a response. She suggested, as humans, we are all capable of rational thought and therefore an alternative to war always exists. The recent and continuing stream of brutal videos put out on the internet by the terrorist group ISIL, also known as ISIS, caused the author to reflect upon her letter again. He wondered if she finally came to recognize an enemy willing to behead innocent children is not human, and thus no alternative to killing him on the battlefield exists. I must interject here that the United States government, which had a pretty significant role in creating ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State, is murdering children every single week through decapitation strikes and double-tap strikes, employing predator drones and hellfire missiles, directed at various neighborhoods in Pakistan. Children in Pakistan are fearful of the sky. It has become so cluttered with these airborne implements of mass death and indiscriminate mayhem. There is no moral difference between that and what ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State has been doing within its much more limited area of claimed sovereignty. To continue, just like Ebola, the mindset of ISIL and its ilk is a disease. While no one would suggest talking a disease down to remove it as a danger, why then do some believe talking to any Islamic terrorist group, as the Obama administration has done, would be any more successful? I should interject again that the Obama regime is actually bombing ISIS targets in Syria and in Iraq. It's not as if they're simply talking, and it's not as if Barack Obama has been at all diffident in deploying military force on behalf of dubious objectives without moral license or constitutional authority. But it is here that the author believes an apology is needed. In responding to that student's question four years earlier on how to change the enemy's mindset, the author regrets failing to be more definitive. His response should have been that given by retired U.S. Army Colonel Ralph Peters during a recent Fox News interview. Asked for the best way to handle ISIL terrorists, Peters said it is to kill them, keep on killing them until they're all dead, and then kill their pet goat. Undoubtedly, there are people who heard Peter's interview and have written him a kumbaya letter critical of his brutally honest comment. It is a cold, hard fact. Whether it is ISIL, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Taliban, the mullahs of Iran, Boko Haram, Somalia Shabaab, Khorasan Group, etc., the enemy we face is blindly committed to eliminating all infidels. They are fearless about dying on the battlefield because they truly believe it is their springboard to an afterlife of endless sexual pleasure as guaranteed by Allah in the Quran. Our own safety turns on adherence to this ideology going the way of the dinosaur. He is 
openly and unabashedly contemplating the extermination of an entire religion. A Muslim death wish is even evident from the ISIL massacre videos by the inactions of their victims. Captives, vastly outnumbering their ISIL captors, realizing they are about to die, make no effort to overpower their captors. They are lemmings lacking any motivation to survive this life, apparently prompted by a motivation to access the next. The message to take from Muslim victims unwilling to save themselves to pursue their promised afterlife should be clear. Their murderers will never be convinced to stop killing. As for ISIL and those similarly motivated, and I will interject here yet again, the thrust of commentary of this kind is that everybody who belongs to the Muslim religion, every adherent to their doctrines, is a latent ISIS-style terrorist. There are no distinctions to be made from the perspective of people like Lieutenant Colonel Zumwalt. On the basis of what they have written and what they have said, it is clear that Muslims constitute an undifferentiated global mass of unfiltered menace, and it must be exterminated in the interest of protecting us, supposedly. While bombing ISIL in Syria is a good start on the evolution, it is not the final solution. And once again, he wrote those lines unironically. A rather similar exhortation is provided to us by a man named Paul Haldera, who was with something called the Lincoln Heritage Institute in Michigan. As far as I can tell, that's a shell company or a front group of some sort that pulls in about $500,000 a year in revenues from unspecified sources. It's not registered with the Better Business Bureau. It doesn't provide tax information. It's privately held. There's no list of corporate officers besides a director. I suspect that this is one of those myriad groups into which the United States government, through three-letter agencies of various kinds, pumps out money in order to engage in mass herd poisoning. His essay on this website, Family Security Matters, is entitled, Let's Get Serious About Radical Islam. By getting serious, Mr. Halra would have us believe, we would of necessity criminalize Islam. Islam is not a religion as we understand the term, insists Mr. Halra. Rather, it is a complete political, judicial, economic, military, and cultural system masquerading as a religion. Its adherents refuse to assimilate into host country cultures, insisting that they be allowed to exist as an independent entity, not subject to the laws of their host nations. The same is true of Satmar Hasidic Jews, the same is true of the Amish, the same was once true of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These are people who existed as undigested subcultures within a larger society. And these groups, many of them, have been severely persecuted. The Mormons were at one point subject to something called an extermination order. That's the history we're revisiting here. In order to accomplish their ends, says Mr. Halra of the Muslims, they regularly preach the overthrow of their host governments by violence if necessary. Accordingly, continues Mr. Halra, we must resolve that what is sauce for the communist goose is sauce for the Islamic gander. In order to neutralize Islam's cultural institutions within our country, we must do, as I have previously suggested, we must tailor the language of Section 2 of the Communist Control Act of 1954, a law that has not been struck down by the Supreme Court and which is still on the books, and transpose it into an instrument, he continues, of anti-Islamic persecution and, if necessary, imprisonment and expulsion. He wants nothing less than to outlaw the Islamic religion within the United States. There is a precedent for using the forms of anti-communism in order to persecute, expel, and, if necessary, liquidate a religious internal enemy 
that was seen as an incurable threat to national security, and that precedent once again involved the concept of a final solution. I'll be back in just a minute. So behind closed doors, you felt that the mosque was much more radicalized than they let on to the general public. They, did they ever discuss the subject of beheadings? Was that ever discussed? The only time that beheadings were discussed was in the means of which you confront the infidel, as it is related to in the Quran, that when you meet the unbelievers, you should smite at their necks. Did they talk publicly, I mean privately behind closed doors, about the need to act differently in front of the media? You made reference to that. There is a teaching in Islam called taqiyah, which is deception. The reason that they are so deceptive is that when they cannot do jihad physically, they attempt to do jihad by means of stealth. And the story from the beginning, it is a story, brothers and sisters of Islam, of reconciliation. It's a story of outreach. It's the story of love, subhanAllah. And you will see, subhanAllah, how comprehensive this deen is. How respect, how much respectful we all have for our fellow who are saying that we are followers of Jesus, peace be upon him. How much love and compassion we should show brothers and sisters in Islam in these times, subhanAllah, when Islam is being attacked and attacked and attacked. We have a principle. We don't attack back. Because Jesus, peace be upon him, is a prophet of Allah. Mary, peace be upon her, is the mother of Jesus, peace be upon him. And to us, as people of principles, those are the people we pay homage to, despite what they say. Welcome back to Freedom Zealot Radio. I'm William Grigg. In addition to producing this program, I am the author and the proprietor of the Pro Libertate blog, which you can find at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. I typically update that blog between once and twice a week. There's a PayPal button at the right-hand side of the page, and at the bottom of every essay, there's also a Bitcoin button. I would really appreciate your help. The first of the two excerpts that you just heard was from a man called Noor, N-O-O-R, who purported to be a former member of the mosque in Oklahoma City that was attended briefly by Alton Nolan, who is the accused murderer and attempted murderer of two women at a local food processing plant in Moore, Oklahoma. From what I understand, Mr. Nolan attended that mosque a handful of times. He described himself as a convert to Islam. His theology was deliriously syncretistic, and most importantly, he was a man of criminal impulses. He had nothing to do with that mosque apart from the fact that he had gone there to worship on a couple of occasions. 
The same is true of this individual called Nor. When I interviewed Imad Ichasi, he explained to me that he knew both of these men peripherally, and from the description he gave to me of these two men, it seems that they were mirror images of each other. Alton Nolan is a black bigot. He does not like white people. Nor, as Imam Achasi described him to me, went from briefly attending the mosque during the last decade and then going back as an asset of law enforcement, according to his own story, a few months ago. During that interval, apparently, Nor actually went and joined a white supremacist group in Oklahoma City. There are more than a few groups that meet that description in that town, unfortunately. And more recently, he's been involved in a religious fellowship that is explicitly and compulsively anti-Muslim. He was described to me as a rather disturbed man, not all that dissimilar to Alton Nolan, albeit with a different set of ethnic preoccupations, because while he attended the mosque, according to the imam, he spent most of his time in the company of the Caucasian converts. This is a multi-ethnic religious community we're talking about, after all. What I find compelling about this contrast is the depiction that Nor gave of this mosque as a seething cauldron of deceptive resentment toward Christians when they are among themselves and they think nobody else is listening on his construction. The imam and his followers are simply overteeming with eagerness to slit our throats if we do not submit to them and to their religion. That's how these people supposedly speak when they think nobody is listening. The second excerpt is from a sermon delivered on Christmas Eve in that mosque in 2010. That's a specimen of what he is saying and what these people are saying to each other when they think nobody is listening. It is a message of reconciliation it is a message of respect. It is a message of forbearance in the face of persecution and provocation. Although we are attacked, he said, we don't attack back because of our respect for Jesus. And Jesus famously taught the precept of turning the other cheek when we are on the receiving end of unprovoked violence. I would go so far as to say that there is probably more authentic Christian content in that Muslim sermon than you're likely to find in many of the religious fellowships that surround that mosque who are fixated on their fears of people they believe are their irreconcilable enemies. And if they were the enemies of the people living in Oklahoma City who profess to be Christians, the Christian duty is to pray for these people. Our commission is to teach them how they can get to heaven rather than to be obsessed with various ways that we can send them to hell. In the last segment, I reviewed for you some of the utterly demented outpourings of Paul Haldra with family security matters. He's the fellow who wants to use a 60-year-old measure that should have fallen into desuetude, entitled the Communist Control Act of 1954, by transposing it into the religious idiom and employing it as a way literally to criminalize the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith in the United States. With that statute on the books, we can make it very uncomfortable for radical Islamists, insists Mr. Hollera. We can make their presence in our country so unpleasant that they will long for a return to whatever hellhole they and their predecessors crawled out of. What he's talking about, of course, is turning the United States into the equivalent of a despotic Middle Eastern dictatorship. Most of these people fled from dictatorships that are being propped up by the United States government. 
With eyes and ears planted in every mosque and every Muslim cultural center in America, radical imams such as the late Anwar al-Awlaki could be readily identified and FBI agents could quickly make arrests. This, of course, would be an adaptation of the East German-style surveillance state, which we're living under, incidentally. He's talking about focusing this apparatus of surveillance more intently on people of the Muslim religion. And finally, Americans have always prided ourselves on our ingenuity. Whatever problems we've confronted, we have found ways to solve them. So let's use that ingenuity to change, to the extent possible, the hearts and minds of Muslims around the world. Not a bad idea, taken in the abstract. What he's talking about, however, is making use of holography as a way of staging a second coming of Muhammad, which I don't think is an event most Muslims are anticipating. They do anticipate the second coming of Jesus, which is something said explicitly in this sermon in an excerpt I don't have time to share with you. Most Muslims do anticipate that Jesus will come back, but they're not anticipating the second advent of Muhammad. He's talking about using a holographic image of Muhammad to preach an anti-terrorist message to captive audiences of Muslims. We already have made-to-order audiences, hundreds of jihadists and other soldiers of the faith, warehoused in various CIA black sites, as well as prison compounds in Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay. The only thing missing is the Prophet Muhammad himself. He talks about generating this holographic image that, in a loud and booming voice with a slight echo chamber quality, would awaken the terrified throng. His reason for returning, he would say, is to tell the radical Islamists that they have misrepresented his teachings and that he looks with great disfavor upon the radical Islamic interpretation of the Quran. He would declare that Islamic jihad is a great sin, it is prohibited war against society, and that ISIS leader Bakr al-Baghdadi is the leader of evildoers condemned by the Quran. He would tell them that all those who follow the evil ways of ISIS and the Taliban will suffer eternal hellfire unless they repent. The problem here is that we don't need to confect a holographic simulacrum of Muhammad, as if we would have any reliable guide for creating such an apparition. We don't need to do this because there are people like Imam Inchasi who are preaching that message. And for their trouble and for their principle, they're being vilified, they're being execrated, they're being misrepresented as if they were terrorists. The problem is not that we don't have sufficient ingenuity in a technical sense. The problem is that we don't have sufficient moral imagination or moral discipline to recognize the truth and act upon it. I'll be back in just a minute. The fact of the matter is I'm trying to uh, educate people on Islam. And if they're Muslim Americans um, and they subscribe to Islam, then they're just as bad as ISIS that's overseas doing what they're doing under the flag of Islam. John Bennett is resolute. The dominant ideological trend in the Islamic society is is hate-filled. Dr. Kimball is one of only eight Americans who met with Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini during the hostage crisis three and a half decades ago. Kimball says the Islamic Bible, known as the Koran, does not spew the hate for other religions, as Bennett claims. And I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I'm, I'm very actively involved and engaged as a person of faith within the Christian tradition. Representative John Bennett, who's a Republican from Salisau, wrote on Facebook, quote, The Koran clearly states that non-Muslims should be killed. Be wary of the individuals who claim to be Muslim American. Be especially wary if you're a Christian. 
But the Oklahoma chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, is demanding an apology. They say Bennett's post is spreading fear and false assumptions. In fact, in the fifth chapter of the Holy Book, it states to take the life of one innocent person is equivalent to taking the life of all of humanity. Um, and he clearly overlooked that. For, for us to sit back and listen to their lies and deflection and let them continue on their, their claims that, all oh, this is all racist and folk, it's just absolutely ridiculous. It happened so fast, writes Tom Engelhart, that at first I didn't even take it in. Two Saturdays ago, a friend and I were heading into the Phillips Museum in Washington, D.C. to catch a show of neo-impressionist art when we ran into someone he knew heading out. I was introduced, and the usual chit-chat ensued. At some point she asked me, do you live here? No, I replied, I'm from New York. She smiled, responded that it too was a fine place to live, then hesitated just a beat before adding in a quiet, friendly voice, given ISIS, maybe neither city is such a great place to be right now. Goodbyes were promptly said, and we entered into the museum. All this passed so quickly that I didn't begin rolling her comment around in my mind until we were looking at the sublime pointillist paintings of George Seurat and his associates. Only then did I think, ISIS a danger in New York? ISIS a danger in Washington? And I had the urge to bolt down the stairs, catch up to her and say, whatever you do, don't step off the curb. That's where the danger lies in American life. ISIS, not so much. I have no idea what provoked her comment. Maybe she was thinking about a story that had broken just two days earlier, topping the primetime TV news and hitting the front pages of newspapers. On a visit to the Big Apple, the new Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, claimed that his intelligence services had uncovered a plot by militants of the Islamic State, IS, a.k.a. ISIS or ISIL, the extremists of the new caliphate that had gobbled up part of his country, against the subway systems of Paris, New York, and possibly other U.S. cities. I had watched Brian Williams report that story on NBC in the usual breathless fashion, along with denials from American intelligence that there was any evidence of such a plot. I had noted as well that police patrols on my hometown's subways were nonetheless quickly reinforced with extra contingents of bomb-sniffing dogs and surveillance teams. Within a day, the leading officials of my state, Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, were denying that they had any information on such a plot, but also taking very public rides on the city's subways to reassure us all. The threat didn't exist, but was also well in hand. I have to admit that, to me, it all seemed almost comic. In the meantime, the background noise of the last 13 years played on inside the American Terror Dome, the chorus of hysteria purveyors, Republican and Democrat alike, nattered on, as had been true for weeks, about the direct, not to say apocalyptic, threat the Islamic State and its caliph posed to the American way of life. These included Senator Lindsey Graham, who said famously, this president needs to rise to the occasion before we all get killed here at home. Majority Leader John Boehner, who insisted that we should consider putting American boots on Iraqi and perhaps even Syrian ground soon, since they intend to kill us. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who swore that the threat ISIS poses cannot be overstated. Senator Bill Nelson, who commented that it ought to be pretty clear that when they say they're going to fly the black flag of ISIS over the White House, that ISIS is a clear and present danger. And a chorus of officials named an anonymous warning that the terror danger to the country was imminent while the usual set of pundits chirped away about the potential destruction of our way of life. The media, of course, continued to report it all with a kind of eyeball-gluing glee. The result, by the time I met the woman, 
71% of Americans believed ISIS had nothing short of sleeper cells in the U.S., Shades of Homeland, meaning, of course, the television series of that name. And at least the same percentage, if not more, depending upon which poll you read, were ready to back a full-scale bombing campaign promptly launched by the Obama administration against the group. If, however, you took a step out of the overwrought American universe of terror threats for 30 seconds, it couldn't have been clearer that everyone in the grim netherworld of the Middle East now seemed to have our number. The beheading videos of the Islamic State had clearly meant to cause hysteria on the cheap in this country, and they worked. Those first two videos somehow committed us to a war now predicted to last for years, a never-ending bombing campaign that we know perfectly well will establish the global credentials of the Islamic State and its mad caliph in jihadist circles. In fact, the evidence is already in from North Africa to Afghanistan to Pakistan. The group is suddenly a brand name, its black flag something to hoist, and its style of beheading something to be imitated. Now, the Shia opponent of those jihadists had taken the hint, and not surprisingly, the very same path. The Iraqi prime minister, whose intelligence services had only recently been blindsided when IS militants captured huge swaths of his country, claimed to have evidence that was guaranteed to set loose the professional terror mongers and hysterics in this country, and so, assumedly, increase much-needed support for his government. Or perhaps that woman I met had instead been struck by the news only days earlier that in launching a bombing campaign against the militants of the Islamic State in Syria, the Obama administration had also hit another outfit. It was called, so we were told, the Corazon Group, and unlike the IS, it had the United States of America, the homeland, right in its bomb sites. As became clear after the initial wave of hysteria swiftly passed, no one in our world or theirs had previously heard of such a group, which may have been a set of individuals in a larger Al-Qaeda-linked Syrian rebel outfit called the Al-Nusra Front, who had no such name for themselves. By the way, the Al-Nusra Front is one of the radical groups that the United States government has been plying with money and weaponry, of course. To continue, whatever the case, it seemed that the Obama administration and connected intelligence outfits had our number two. Although Coruscant was reputedly plotting against airplanes, not subways, transportation systems were evidently our jugular when it came to such outfits. This group, we were told in leaks by unnamed American intelligence officials, was made up of a cadre, or collection, of hardened senior al-Qaeda types from Afghanistan who had settled in Syria not to overthrow Bashar al-Assad or create a caliphate, but to prepare the way for devastating attacks on the American homeland and possibly Western Europe as well. It was, as Director of National Intelligence James Clapper put it, potentially yet another threat to the homeland, and it was imminent as the U.S. Central Command... By the way, why is the U.S. Central Command focused on the Middle East? In what sense is that central to the defense of the United States? But I digress. As U.S. Central Command insisted in announcing the bombing strikes against the group, it involved imminent attack planning. The Corazon Group was, as Lieutenant General William Mayville, Director of Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in the final stages of plans to execute major attacks against Western targets and potentially the U.S. homeland. Had we not hit them hard, they would be, so American intelligence officials assured us, on the verge, or at least the verge of the verge, of developing bombs so advanced that using toothpaste tubes, rigged electronic devices, or possibly clothes soaked in explosives, their agents would be able to pass through airport security undetected and knock plane after plane out of the sky. Civilization was in peril, which meant that blazing headlines about the plot and the group mixed with shots of actual bombs, ours, exploding in Syria, and a sense of crisis that was, as ever, taken up with gusto by the media. 
as Glenn Greenwald and Murtasa Hussein pointed out in a devastating report at the Intercept, the whole Coruscant story began to disassemble within a day or so of the initial announcement and the bombing strikes in Syria. It took next to no time at all for that imminent threat to morph into aspirational planning, for reporters to check with their Syrian sources and find out that no one knew a thing about the so-called Coruscant group, for the taking down of those airliners to gain an ever more distant and possibly even fictional look. As ever, however, pointing out the real dangers in our world was left largely to non-mainstream sources, while the threat to our way of life to Washington and New York lingered in the air. It's easy to explain why people who presume to rule us want us to be frightened. What mystifies me is this perverse appetite the American public have for being scared shitless. I don't know how to explain this, other than entertaining the possibility that we, at some level, want to be ruled. If you constantly take counsel of your fear, you're admitting that you want to be protected by somebody or something. Once again, superstition is rooted in fear, not in love. That leads me to a terrific new book by my friend Connor Boyack of the Libertas Institute in Utah entitled Feardom. What he points out is that weaponized fear is perhaps the most lethal asset in the arsenal of those who want to rule us. Fear leads to despotism. Love leads to liberty. Acting selflessly disarms those who weaponize fear. For if our concern for ourselves has decreased in relation to other considerations, such as the well-being of our friends and family, then conniving politicians cannot exploit our emotions as easily. Hobgoblins become seen for the fiction they truly are. Threats become contextualized. Enemies become brothers and sisters. It's as William Hazlitt once said, the love of liberty is the love of others. The love of power is the love of ourselves. A person who prioritizes a love for others is not content with focusing on his own welfare, but is eager to reach out to others and improve others' lives as well. This is the vision of a civil, productive, and prosperous society. Because, as we are authoritatively informed, perfect love casteth out fear. Thank you for joining me this week on Freedom Zealot Radio. Please join me online at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. I'll be with you again in a week, and until then, as always, dum spiro pugno, while I breathe, I fight. Good night, God bless, please pray for peace and practice peace. And may we send the state back to the hell that spawned it. We sent emissaries to our opponents to propose peace. The first were killed, but others followed. Ultimately, we achieved peace. The circumstances were different then, sir. The face of war has never changed, Captain. Surely it is more logical to to heal than kill. Your Surak is a brave man. Men of peace usually are, Captain. <laughs>